0: Hello lovers of the unordinary and rare, I'm your host Katie Gannaway, and you are in for a treat today here on Arts Underground, here on the last day of 2022. Today's episode gets nostalgic, delving into a staple of Huntsville music history, the Tip Top Cafe. And that's possible thanks to some brilliant, kind folks who have dedicated their time regaling us with tales reminiscent of the good old days at the Tip Top. Our lineup consists of musicians who performed there, folks who frequented the place, people who booked gigs there, and more. Thanks to everyone who also contributed to this episode in other ways, helping connect us with integral figures to this beloved venue, contributing photos, flyers, and music recordings, and especially to the movers and shakers who scratched out a place of their own, and for future generations of music makers here in Huntsville's local music scene. Though I was not able to record with former Tip Top Cafe owner Lance Church nor current owner Bill Chapman due to scheduling conflicts, it must be acknowledged that these two individuals have been integral parts in both the launch and revitalization of the venue. And I must thank someone you'll hear this hour, Michael Kilpatrick, my friend and walking encyclopedia of Huntsville music history, for the trip out to what was the shell of the old Tip Top Cafe. Michael told me several captivating stories about the wild times that went down inside that small but mighty venue, which begged the curious question, what was it like for others who experienced the Tip Top We've gathered a number of nostalgic stories from some of the folks who were there. Kicking it all off is Caroline Prince, who recollects a packed show that made a lasting impact on a Los Angeles-based band and a new special
1: bond with a local band. Here's one of my most happy memories from the tip-top. I was sitting at the bar one afternoon, and this really, like, harried looking man came in, was glancing around, clearly disgusted with what he was seeing. And almost immediately, he went to the payphone, which conveniently was right next to where I was sitting. And he called somebody up and he was like, no, you're not playing here tonight. We're canceling. This place is a shithole Absolutely not. I forbid it. You know, language like that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And my ears kind of perked up because I knew that Concrete Blonde was going to be playing there that night. And I loved Concrete Blonde. They were a band from L.A., that hadn't hit the mainstream or anything, but just was a female-led, really great band. And I mean, that's why I was sitting at the bar in the middle of the day in the first place, was because I was hoping to see them move in. I was just like casually, you know, drinking a Coke, whatever, saying, oh, look, there, there's James Mankey and Janet Napolitano. Well, I just happened to be here, you know, that kind of thing. But, um So I was a little upset to hear what this guy was saying. And he hung up the phone and he went to go talk to somebody behind the bar. And then I started worrying because um, some friends of mine, a band called Trusty Kelp, they were scheduled to open for Concrete Blonde, you know, and that was an absolute coup for Trusty Kelp. Local bands, you know, would fight over getting to open for huge bands that came into the tip top. And Lance Church, you know, the owner and the booker of the tip top, he kind of handed out those gigs Kind of like he was a king (laughs) handing out tracts of land, you know, and we would get really excited when we got somebody good. And they were my friends. So I was worried about Trusty Kelp maybe losing that gig. But then that guy came out from around the bar and he walked off and left. And I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll see what happens, I guess. So I got to the Tip Top early that night and uh, the place was already filling up. And there was a proper stage at this time. Nobody was playing at the risk of sewage water on the ground anymore. And it was full of equipment, and there was a uh, big tour bus out in the parking lot. So I was like, okay, this is going to (laughs) happen. And I was looking for my friends and trusty kelp, but I couldn't find them anywhere. Uh, But, you know, whatever. I know this is a go. And the place got more and more packed, and it finally got to the point where Lanny had to quit letting people in. And the show hadn't even started yet, you know we were literally hanging from the rafters. I mean, people were on people's shoulders. People were hanging on to the roof, standing on it. I think there was a pony wall near the music board. So people were really just packing the place. And then Trusty came out to play and they did a really great job. And then Concrete Blonde jumped up on the stage and just started ripping into their hits. And the place exploded. Everyone was dancing and singing and just going crazy. And out in the parking lot too. You know, you could see them through the windows. At one point, Jeanette Napolitano, the lead singer and the songwriter, she called out a much-loved song. Oh, we're about to do the song. And, you know, this was maybe 35 years ago for me. I don't know. I can't remember what the song was. I remembered for a long time. Maybe it was uh, Still in Hollywood or Happy Birthday. I don't know. But it was a super popular song. And people were just like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And uh, they started the song. And everybody in that room just stood there and sang along with a song word for word, every single word. I mean, I'm getting chill bumps thinking about it right now. And when the song was over, Johnette wiped her eyes, and she knelt at the edge of the stage. And she told us how much it meant to her, her and her band coming from Los Angeles to Alabama, where they had never been before, um, not having any idea what to expect, Having her manager call her and tell her the place was too small of a shithole to even consider and that he was worried nobody would even show up. And she said the fact that we all knew the words to their songs, despite the fact that we were separated by, like, an entire country and even maybe culture, it touched her so much that she would never forget it, you know. I I don't remember her exact words, but I remember the feeling that she was giving each and every one of us in the place. And, you know, later I found out that Trusty Kelp had been hanging out with – Concrete Blonde in the in the touring bus, which is unheard of, you know, and that Johnette had been giving them her phone number and giving them advice on the music industry. And so the whole thing was just from, from start to end was just lovely, supportive, awesome. And that is the power of original live music in small venues, right? And that was the particular power of the tip Top. I mean, regulars there included Vietnam vets, ex-cons, local musicians, people from the nearby projects, neighbors, old men who still grease their hair like Elvis, local kids like me, punks, weirdos, down on their luck folks traveling through town. And I swear, to this day, I think Homer Hickam and his wife were regulars. I would not put my hand on a Bible about that, but I still feel like I remember seeing him there. But anyhow, on the good nights, we all became one. We came together in this dingy, dark, wet, acoustically unsound meet and three in an almost forgotten part of Huntsville. And we turned it into what I think is, was one of the most magical places on earth. And I like to thank Lance Church and everybody who made that possible because they really gave me and Huntsville something very special.
0: If you wanted more information on the vibe of the Tip Top and what it looked like, fabulous local music producer, music historian, and seasoned musician Michael Kilpatrick shares the story of his first time entering the hallowed interior of the Tip Top Cafe.
2: Well, the first time I went to the Tip Top Cafe was probably the end of 1986 or early 1987. I kind of was struck by... What an absolute dive it was. It was just hidden in a shady little street lined with light industrial buildings and a small strip of mill houses. Dallas Mill was a few blocks away, and the Tip Top Cafe had apparently been a working man's beer bar. Total blue-collar neighborhood that had probably seen better days. Inside, everything was dark and old-looking. The decor hadn't changed much since, I'm guessing, maybe the late 1950s. A deer head was mounted on top of an open wall that separated the two main rooms. There was a dartboard that no one ever used, as the venue's main attraction up to then seemed to be the drinking of beer, which in those days was something I was becoming acquainted for better or worse. Someone had told me a band that was gonna play there that evening and starved for live music that wasn't Journey or Styx or Van Halen. I was pleased to find out that the Tip Top Cafe had booked a Huntsville band trip to Argentina. I was pleased for many reasons, but chiefly among them was because live music around here, I just wanted something that didn't suck. And my longtime friend and former bandmate Caroline Prince was singing and playing bass for them. The guitar player was someone who I had admired from a distance for a few years. I'd seen his old band at UAH back in like 1983 or so. Didn't know his name, but I sure remembered his playing in a visage. He was just an unreal guitar player. Later that night, we were introduced, and it was the first time I met Mark Torstensen, whom I still play with to this day. At that time, bands at the tip-top played toward the main rooms from a somewhat narrow, slanted, cinder block addition to the left of the main building. The ceiling was around eight feet high, and the stage acoustics were not unlike the sound of someone hurling a million light bulbs down a set of cement stairs. We are not at the opera here. After that show, Mark Torstenson would loom large in my story after a few years. But on the drive home from the gig, the only thought really in my head was, I have to play the Tip Top Cafe, period. I was 19 years old, and after about three years of scouring Huntsville for suitable venues to play, I'd found my home, I thought. Previously, I'd played drums in the band I was in, but by late 1987, I'd started fronting one as a singer— So I was given the name Lance Church as the guy to talk to about booking a gig at the tip-top. One daytime, I went by and introduced myself and asked him for any available date for my band. He winced just a little bit, which I don't blame him for, but then reluctantly offered me a Sunday evening in the early summer of 1987. Well, the show went so well that the venue was nearly full And conveniently, the toilets located next to the stage overflowed, so we played our two-hour set standing on a floor of recycled beer. (laughs) At the end of the night, Lance asked us to come back, and a date was set, and we were in. At the time, I was on sort of a crusade. I thought that everybody in Huntsville needed to know about Iggy Pop, the Velvet Underground, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, the Gun Club, and, of course, the Ramones. Given that our band only had a handful of original tunes, we filled most of our set with tunes from bands like, you know, stuff we've already mentioned, which was most definitely not something you'd hear a live band in Huntsville, Alabama play. We weren't a great band, but a good one and entertaining to see, if not experience, which was down to our enthusiasm. And Lance and the Tip Top Cafe kind of just let us get on with it. We weren't really sophisticated enough to know it at the time, but they call this stage of your musical career growing up in public. We were undeniable, and we were grateful for the opportunity. But within a couple of years, word started to get out that the Tiptoe Cafe was kind of a legitimate venue, conveniently located halfway from Nashville to Birmingham and Atlanta to Memphis, and some of the bands from the bigger cities would swing through and be pleasantly surprised at the pretty enthusiastic greeting they'd be given. By 1989, 1990 or so, we'd gotten to where we'd pack the place every time we played, and we'd bring our friends' bands along to open the shows. And we started to see younger people milling around the dark and dusty parking lot at the tip-top, kids swigging beers and blaring the buzzcocks from their cars. It's as if punk and alternative music had finally arrived in Huntsville, about maybe 10 years late, but better late than never. By now, about 21, 22 years old, played gigs all over the South and some of these young guys and girls are beginning to approach me and say things like, hey, we have a band, we cover some of y'all's tunes. Do you uh, think we could open up for you guys sometime? Well, I remember back to how I felt when I was, you know, scuffling to find gigs and a friendly club owner. So I rarely turned anybody down. By 1991, the Tip Top Cafe was an institution of its own and it sort of became a dream for many young Huntsville musicians to play there. But first, you had to literally get inside the door. I may or may not have absentmindedly left the tip-top stage-side door slightly ajar on a couple of occasions, letting a few underage musicians slip in with instructions to stay in the back, don't say a word to anyone, don't drink anything, and watch out. I'm happy to say that more than a few of these people, including my dear friends Alan Little and Steven Jackson, were among those whom I was able to help out, and that was fine. And I love seeing these guys to this day because they still play great. But not only did the Tip Top Cafe become a petri dish for musicians, guys like my friends Chris Brown, David Wester, and Charlie Sanderson also cut their teeth learning how to do live sound, turning sound engineering into career paths for them. These guys took an absolute shambles of a PA system and managed to make us all sound great. You've truly never lived until addressing a vocal microphone at the Tip Top Cafe. All of them absolutely reeked of beer, sweat, cigarettes, and God knows what else. By 1991, the guy I admired so much at my first visit to the Tip Top, Mark Torstenson, had ended up at a party I was at. We had a long backyard chat about doing a rockabilly band, something that you really couldn't give away at that moment. As he was kind of versed in the rockabilly thing, and I'd come up on Carl Perkins and Hank Williams, so thus began the Frigidaires, who we kind of became monthly regulars at the Tip Top. By this time, the word had totally got out that the Tip Top was a place to be. And one of my fondest memories is taking a peek out the stage side door one Thanksgiving night and seeing an overflowing parking lot and a line of people down the street waiting to get in. The venue's official capacity was, to my knowledge, about 110 people maybe, but there were easily 300 or more people already inside. Unreal. Unreal. It hit me that the combination of hard work, enthusiasm, and a club owner willing to take chances on some previously untested music and talent could really work in Huntsville, Alabama. I remember, well, strapping on that guitar, pushing through that seething throng of people, and hopping on that stage and just looking out. I felt like I knew almost everyone in that room, and they all knew me. That was a great feeling, one that I'll cherish forever. I saw some truly, truly great bands in that venue, the Tip Top Cafe, shared the stage with some of them, and some I even shared a bottle with, met some wonderful people there, people who remain my friends to this day. You never really knew what would happen, whether you'd see a blinding show by Billy Joe Shaver, get a broken nose in a drunken brawl, or watch the guys from Cheap Trick play pool. It was just an incredible place. The Tip Top Cafe was just that kind of place.
0: One of Tip Top's first-ever bands booked was Reverie. In this next story, band member John Owens tells us about Reverie's first gig at the Tip Top Cafe and how a plea to then-owner Lance Church to let more local bands play helped expand the venue into what it became revered for among local musicians and music-loving misfits.
3: Apparently, I feel like we were the first band to play the Tip Top in the modern-day era. I know I've spoke to someone that said... uh, oh, no, they had bands back in the 30s and the 40s. I'm saying, well, I don't know anything about that. I wasn't around. But since I've been around, as far as I know, we were the first band that played there. So the band was Reverie, and we were a garage punk band that covered lots of REM. And there were a lot more talented bands at the time, in my opinion anyway, because I liked to follow them. uh, But we filled some kind of niche. So our singer and band leader was a man named Quentin. And we'd grown up just a few, half a block from each other. He, he was a good drummer, a couple of years older than me. I played guitar. We jammed together a lot. But he, uh, he got tired of drumming and wanted to, to step out in front and sing. He wasn't much of a singer. He had a personality, so he had that going for him. But uh, his entrepreneurial skills and enterprises allowed him to finance the band. So uh, he always found some good drummers that were as good as him or better. And so the band was Quentin, David Burgess uh, and myself. We were the core of the band and then the, the revolving door of drummers. Uh, Reverie practiced every night almost, but it was more of a party than a practice. So uh, but those parties developed into us being invited to play other parties. And sometimes we even got paid. That led us being invited to play in some record stores and some of the bigger restaurants and bars. One night, think it was a Sunday night, David and his, and his girlfriend Amy Wood and Quentin all loaded up and went down the tip-top to talk to Lance and Lance Church. Uh, Lance, the, the, the Tip Top had been in the church's family for some years. I don't know if it always was, but it had been in there for a long time. The Tip Top Cafe those days was a neighborhood bar. Everybody kind of knew the Tip Top for is as a local redneck, blue-collar drinking bar after work type place. It's in Lincoln Village, and it had been there very, you know, forever. So Lance had just taken over kind of the the day-to-day, I guess, running of it, and he wanted to do something on Friday and Saturday nights, he wanted to boost the business. So he asked us to play. Probably David Burgess had talked us up, you know, I'm pretty sure he was our biggest salesperson back then. So Lance invited us to play. So, so for $100 for the band a night and all the beer we could drink, we were asked to play the Tip Top. So the first night, the Tip Top back in those days, the front room was it that's all there was to it there was uh you walked in the front door it was in the middle of the the front door was like six feet or less off the the actual street so we get there friday night after i get off work and we move uh, a couple of the the regular and their regular drinkers redneck drinkers and their their slits beers out of the way and move them there on the tables to the side and we set up our pa and We go back to my house and come back at 9 o'clock or whenever we're supposed to start. And about 9.30 or 10, we finally start. And uh, the Rednecks that are still there, going like, play something we want to hear. You know, we like, we don't know nothing if you want to hear. Reverie played with an R.E.M. cover band, a.k.a. Reverie. Uh, So um, we played mostly R.E.M. We had a few Jason the Scorcher songs, Talking Heads song or two, uh, The Clash. Uh, one one really good original, one meh yeah, original, but we had a lot of fun. First night we played for a small gathering, you know, of our regular local. Our regular we had a we had a following, a few other people that you know strangers we didn't know. Uh, my friend Chris Fitz, I'm pretty sure he was there, who Chris and me got together and did some things later on, and he has a he has a great history at the Tip Top too. Um, he has some great stories. Some of his bands are some of my favorites, uh, Cranberry Man and Red Frog. Anyway, we played that first night, and there was, you know, probably 20, 30 people, you know, a decent crowd for that smaller room. Saturday night, it was actually pretty busy, you know, so it's like, hey, that was really lots of fun. So then, the next week, we play again, and, you know, we weren't really expecting what happened the next week. I say, okay, so so Lance, I'm pretty sure it was the next week, if it wasn't it was the next week after, Lance had, had knocked a hole. In the wall under the Longhorns and filled it in. It was a, formerly a carport, but now it was like a picture box. The ceiling sloped down in the back, so the drummer, where the drums were, if the drummer raised his arms too high, he in the ceiling. And if, if he stood up, he hit the, his head on the ceiling. And our leader, our lead singer, would jump up and down, and he'd hit his head on the ceiling. So the first night that we came in, you know, we came in to set up as usual. We didn't have to move the, the Rednecks out of the way this time because Lance had the, had the hole opened up for us. We just went and set up our stuff, went back back to my house to uh, to pregame, and came back at our assigned time. We were supposed to start playing and could barely get into the door because it was wall-to-wall people. We squirmed our ways to the front, back to the stage in that little picture box, and uh, we crank up and we start to play. We uh, we played loud. We start and we play our first song. You know, we get through the song and we stop. And the noise coming back to us is as loud as we were playing. It was the greatest feeling I've ever had in my life to feel. I, that was a rush. That was an adrenaline rush. And from then on, we just I think we had a, probably one of our best shows probably because the, what the audience was really giving back. And I'd never felt that before, but it was kind of odd feeling like kind of pinned in. It's like, well, you know, we couldn't go anywhere if we wanted to. <laughs> so we usually played, every probably had 30 songs, maybe 25, 30 songs. So we'd play, we played Friday and Saturday night. And, you know, the next weekend, the first, we played like I think three weekends in a row, because I know I had my kids. And the first weekend, the third weekend, I didn't have them. I got a babysitter the second weekend. By the fourth weekend, I was like, We've already played our songs, all of them that we know. We weren't that good to learn new songs every week. We weren't that good. And so it's like, you know, I'm tired of playing these songs for everybody. I'm sure they're tired of hearing them. So I was like, I really like to take a weekend off. Uh, I gave them the number to, to Mark Tortenson, two of my favorite bands, Them Crackers and Trip to Argentina. I gave them, I said, here, call Mark Tortonson, call Rusty Gerard, get one of these bands. They're great. I'll come see them, you know, if I get my kids to bed or whatever, you know, that you know, you would like these guys. So that's, he, he called them, and I think they played the next couple of weeks. And um, so Lance started getting these bands that were, you know, on the College Circuit Tour to come through the tip-top. And all of a sudden, you know, you getting these bands. And so Reverie never opened. I mean, we opened for bands. We never uh, played a headline again, I don't think, because we opened for bands like Walk the West and I know the Resonators opened for Billy C. Farlow. I, I can't remember all the bands that, that Reverie opened for. But... It was so much fun, and I appreciate Lance giving us the opportunity to do that. Those were some great days.
0: In this next story, a veteran musician-made music shop owner and manager in Huntsville, Mark Torstenson, recalls his time at the Tip Top. We hear some memorable bills he shared playing in local groups like Trip to Argentina and the Frigidaires. Especially Outstanding was a gig where he played with a larger-than-life legendary rock and roll guitarist.
4: I first heard of the Tip Top in probably around 1986. Um, Just before that, I was working with a band called The Trip, and a friend of mine named Orville Kane had seen us play and called me and said, hey, I like what you were doing in that band, um, and I understand it's not going anymore. You want to start a new band doing some of the similar type stuff but more original material? I said, sure, and uh, I had been working with Caroline Prince on some songwriting ideas, and we uh, got together with Orville and found a drummer and Matt Foy and started a band called Trip to Argentina. So we were rehearsing with that band probably in 1985-ish area. And the first time I heard of the Tip Top, um, a friend of mine named John Owens, who was playing in a band called Reverie, uh, mentioned that uh, they were starting to have bands there. And at that time, we were looking for any opportunity to play. So um, we went down to check it out. And It was a cool little hole in the wall, not much going on, but um, it was fun. And like I said, we were looking for any opportunity to play. So trip to Argentina, along with uh, Them Crackers and Reverie, were probably the first three bands to play at the Tip Top Cafe. And the scene kind of grew from there. It was a fun little place, and you could always count on good music, good friends all being there. It gave us an opportunity to get in front of some pretty big bands at the time. Um, Some that I remember were Fetchin' Bones from Atlanta, Flat Dua Jets from Athens, Georgia, Adams Housecat, which later Patterson Hood from that band uh, formed the Drive-By Truckers. So um, we got to split some bills with them. And one of my favorites, and probably the ones that helped us the most, were uh, Brian and the Nightmares from Johnson City, Tennessee. They gave us the opportunity to go up... Eastern Tennessee up to Johnson City and into the um, Carolinas to do some gigs with them. That was a lot of fun. So, you know, offered us a lot of opportunities that otherwise would not have been possible. Uh, later on, I formed a my- band with uh, my friend Mike Kilpatrick called the Frigidaires, and we started uh, doing quite a few gigs at the uh, tip-top and, again, ran into some really fun folks. Uh, Lucky in the Hot Dice is one that we split a bill with that um, Lucky... Became one of my best friends, and Artie Dean, the drummer in that uh, that uh, band, became uh, later the drummer for the Frigidaires um, when our existing drummer moved on to other things. The Frigidaires also gave us the opportunity to get in front of uh, Bo Diddley and back him up as well. Um, Lance, the owner of the Tip Top at the time, had seen the Frigidaires obviously and thought, "Hey, you guys like that 50s music? Um, I've got Bo Diddley coming." And back in those days. Those artists didn't travel with a band. they had come to town with their guitar and say, hey, give me a band, I need this kind of instrumentation, and just learn the songs on the fly and go. Lance called me and said, hey, can you put a band together to play behind Bo Diddley, and I said, yes. Put a little band together, it included Orville from the trip to Argentina, Artie Dean, Jim Cavender, Andrew Sharp, there might have been a couple other people. I've honestly, it's been almost 30 years, so I can't remember. That was one of the highlights of my experiences at the Tip Top, was getting to back Bo Diddley. It was a great experience. Tip Top was just a incredible place that always a cast of very interesting people. Some of the regulars there were uh, Red Ryder, who uh, was an old fella that... Uh, Started going there for lunchtime, and he would just continue to hang out. I think he was there mostly to flirt with the young girls. And uh, Smokey, who was legendary dancer there, couldn't understand a word he said, though I have been told that that was all an act, <laughs> that you get him apart from his act at the tip-top, he sounded fine. But he mumbled and would convince the frat boys to buy him beer, and then dance, and he was a showstopper when he started dancing, so he was a, a regular and, a, and one of the characters. And obviously, the, the most bigger-than-life, literally and figuratively, character from the tip-top is Lanny, the doorman. And Lanny came on the scene a little after the tip-top opened, and uh, he, was, he was quite a character, a lot of fun to hang out with. Unfortunately, the music stopped in about 1985. We didn't go back there anymore, and I think the place closed down completely not long after that. One interesting thing before it closed is that it was the longest-running beer license in the city of Huntsville until its closure. So it was a great place, fond memories. I hear a new fella has bought the building and trying to bring it back, so let's see what happens next.
0: This episode would not be complete without remembering Tip Top's late great doorman, Lanny Taylor, who I gather didn't care if you had to use the bathroom or go find your friend inside. You were going to pay the cover charge. Caroline Prince joins us once again to remember Lanny. Plus, we hear
1: horrifying adventures in the Tip Top parking lot. Interestingly enough, a lot of what happened at the Tip Top was happening out in the parking lot. Because during breaks, or if the music got too loud, or if you wanted to smoke or whatever, you would wander outside. And that is where Lanny, the doorman, was king. You absolutely cannot talk about the tip-top without talking about Lanny. He was the f- front face. And even though Lance Church was the owner and was also there most of the time, Lanny is who you'll hear about the most. And he was a, he was a big guy, you know, like a big, big guy. Uh, And so he sat out there kind of like a Buddha, and he was mean as hell. Tui, he needed to be mean as hell too, but he was also one of the most charismatic and soft-hearted people and funny folks that you'd ever meet. He's no longer with us, sadly, but I'll bet his tombstone says something like, "Um, I don't care what time it is, it's $5. So anyhow, one time I was sitting outside with Lanny and a horrible fistfight spun up, in the parking lot right in front of us. It was between an older regular and some young guy, and I saw the whole thing. And then the older guy bit the dirt, fell down, and seriously, I thought he had just been killed in front of my very face. So I jumped up and I ran to the payphone and called an ambulance. And I was like, kind of, kind of proud of myself that I had the presence of mind to do the right thing, and I was glad that I knew the address of the tip top and everything. And then I ran out to wait for the ambulance, <laughs> you know, because I was worried about this dead guy laying in the gravel. But before an ambulance even came, the older guy peeled himself up out of the gravel and started swinging around looking for another fight. (laughs) And then I got yelled at by Lanny and Lance for even calling the ambulance, because first of all, who was going to pay for the ambulance, right? And then second of all, what if it brought the police down on everyone, you know? This was back when you couldn't buy beer on Sundays. And I think that maybe, perhaps, I maybe had heard a rumor that maybe the Tip Top ran a pretty profitable brown bag six-pack special on Sundays, so the cops were never really welcome there. And so I felt terrible, of course. I mean, I was a pretty sheltered local kid, and I had never seen a man get his kicked in front of me like that before in my life. But, you know, thinking back on it now, I see that it was summer. It had to have been summer because that's when college kids came back from Auburn and Tuscaloosa and such. And they slummed it at the tip top. And that's when most of the fights were happening. That's when most of the problems occurred.
0: Someone who wholeheartedly loved the Tip Top Cafe is a man with a steel trap mind, Kip Shepard. With a little help from folks who also greatly adored the Tip Top, Kip has logged 534 music groups that graced that teeny tiny stage. You might be shocked to learn who blew into town back then. Kip shares two stories with us one of the last night the beloved Dive Bar hired a band to perform before closing its doors. And first, how leniency and karma went hand in hand one fruitful evening.
5: On the tip top for a long time was one of the places, few places in Huntsville, where illegally you could get a beer and take it home on Sunday. So we would have people who'd show up on Sunday night shows who'd come in just to get a beer and leave. And. I was taking the door one night while a band called The Oblivions was playing. And as they were playing, this guy walks up, and I tell him the cover charge is $5. And he said, I'm not paying a cover charge. I'm just going in to get a beer. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And he goes in. He gets a six-pack to go. On his way out, he tips me $20 and says, here, thanks for letting me in, not charging a cover. I was like, okay, so I gave $20 more to the band, and the guy would have saved money if he just paid the cover charge. From around 1992, uh, starting in 1992, I started booking shows at the Tip Top just as a hobby. I didn't work there or anything, but uh, I got to know Lance, and he trusted me and just let me know that whenever there was a band I wanted to see or a band coming through, just let him know, and he'd put it on the schedule, which went pretty well. Um, if if I knew a band was coming around, um, sometimes I would contact bands, let them know um, if they were in the area, and we had quite a few bands, um, and they would also stay with us at our house. And one of the bands was a trio from Texas called Jesus Christ Superfly, They were really nice guys. They stayed with us. They actually stayed with us a couple times when they were passing through and weren't playing just because it was a place to stay. They were also the band that was booked to play the last night of the Tip Top. Um, We didn't know that at the time. We pulled up to the club and there was construction going on, which was surprising because it was, I think, a Wednesday night. And this was about seven o'clock at night and they had actually had a dumpster and were throwing stuff out. And so we walked in to find out what was happening and somebody said the club no longer has live music and they were ripping out the stage, taking out the PA and we didn't know what to do. So we, of course, ordered some beer and sat down and talked about it. And this, you know, about 20 minutes later, one of the construction guys came over and said, hey, are you the band tonight? And. Rick, the singer of the band was like, yeah, but we're not playing. He said, oh, we got a bunch of stuff that we found under the stage if you want any of it. So they got guitar stands and cables and all sorts of drum equipment. And they said that they pretty much made enough just in the equipment that they picked up and made up for not playing the show. As this was all going on, people would show up and they'd have a beer too and sit down. And we think if the Show had actually gone on. There would have been a good crowd. There was probably 20 or 30 people who had showed up. So after a few minutes, well, after about an hour or so, we decided to go to another club across town where a band called Lucky and the Hot Dice were playing. And so we went over and stayed there for the rest of the night. And that was about it.
0: A huge thanks to Caroline Prince, Michael Kilpatrick, Mark Torstensen, John Owens, and Kip Shepard for sharing their stories of the Tip Top Cafe here on WLRH. The original airing of this episode included locally made and played music recorded at the Tip Top and the music of far less local folks like Concrete Blonde and Bo Diddley. Find a link to the playlist in the description box of this webpage so you can enhance your listening experience. Take care, love yourself, and be sweet, Tennessee Valley.